from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Amanda Rooney and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week we have two archive pieces for you. First, we'll look back on the 2014 People's Social Forum and how that event brought diverse groups of people together to collaborate on building strategies to create social change. Next up, we have a story on the massive Greenland ice sheet melt of the summer of 2012, when 97% of the ice sheet melted in just four days. But before we hear those pieces, here are this week's environmental news headlines. A new research article published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science looks at how climate change could be shifting Kodiak brown bear diets. Normally, these bears' summer diets consist of a big salmon gorge earlier in the summer during salmon spawning season, followed by a switch to elderberries as salmon season ends from August to September. However, as spring temperatures rise, growing seasons shift, and this has caused salmon and berry season to overlap. This change has affected bear behavior and led them to skipping the salmon feast and opting to stick to berries when given the option. Leaving uneaten salmon to die naturally and rot instead of fertilizing the terrestrial ecosystems. Berries seem to be the preference due to a lower protein content which actually allows bears to gain more weight than a protein-heavy fish diet. As the climate alters, we can expect to see many such surprising changes to ecological interactions and even food webs. Former Foreign Minister for the Marshall Islands, Tony DeBrum, passed away on August 22nd at age 72. DeBrum was a fierce advocate for climate change leadership and led negotiations at the 2015 Paris Climate Summit. He called for the goal of the global temperature increase to be kept at 1.5 degrees, arguing that even 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels would be enough to devastate island communities as sea levels rise. At the conference, he brought together more than 100 countries to demand aggressive action as a faction, calling themselves the High Ambition Coalition. Together, they wore coconut leaves on their lapels for the last day of the talks to signify solidarity with island nations. As we all got ready to watch the solar eclipse last week by live stream, special glasses, or even traveling to the zone of totality to view it, as Terra Informer Jason Wang did, there was a lot of concern about the effect the eclipse would have on solar power grids. However, in an exciting twist, it seems that the eclipse had no impact on the solar grid reliability after all. Although California lost about 3,400 megawatts of output during the event, this was easily covered by other power sources. Duke Energy in North Carolina lost about 1,700 megawatts of its 2,500 megawatts solar capacity due to the total eclipse, but it was also able to compensate with the loss with no difficulties. This is a win as it adds another piece to the argument that renewables are a feasible energy source that won't come with sacrifice of reliability. That's all we have for headlines. Now we turn to our archives for our first main story of the week. We see all kinds of groups fighting for their own unique and equally worthy causes every day. In one corner, you've got people defending refugee rights. 
In another, you've got a group bringing down the cost of healthy food and none of it. Over by the door, you've got an activist fighting against mining in her community. This is often how civil society works in Canada. You've got a room full of people in NGOs, unions, Facebook groups, all fighting for their own cause, without seeing how they could support each other. The 2014 People's Social Forum in Ottawa brought together thousands of people from across Canada who want to shift the direction our country is going. The forum basically centered around the idea that to have the future any of us want, we've got to build a future together. Tara Informa's Chris Changyan Phillips was in Ottawa at the 2014 People's Social Forum. Here was his take on the messy, loud, and joyous business of bringing all these groups together. On the opening day of the People's Social Forum, about 2,000 people marched over to Parliament under cloudy August skies. The Ottawa Sun had a headline about it the next day that was surprisingly accurate. A protest for all, 2,000 clogged downtown streets to rally against this, that, and the other thing. Although they were making fun of it, they were right. People arrived from all over the country with countless different agendas to see if they could build a concrete vision together. The march sort of encapsulated the issues people spent the rest of the time debating in workshops and meetings all over the University of Ottawa campus. It was a mix of polite formal meetings in French, English, a little bit of Anishinaabe and Cree, alongside booths giving away stop harper pins. I saw someone come up to the tables where they were handing out simultaneous interpretation equipment and say that they had to try a veggie burger, they could get one for free if they just came outside, and it would be the best veggie burger they'd ever put their lips on. But what's unique about this moment is that at home, these groups, climate change activists, anti-poverty groups, migrant worker advocates, they work in silos. The right doesn't, you say the word neoliberalism, everybody knows what it is. It encapsulates, it captures everything, right? It's It's a political framework, it's an economic framework, it's a social framework. It's a framework to change the DNA of the world, and they're successfully doing that. We don't have such a thing. That's Doris Greenspan. She's the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and she's pretty much the model of people trying to work outside of their silo. So I get very frustrated in my own role and in healthcare, where I say to people like Gideon or others who are fabulous environmentalist, let's also bring you to work on housing and poverty. Or when I say to a colleague in housing or poverty, please come to work on environmental issues. And to, you know what I mean? This is what's unique about this forum. Doris Greenspan was giving a talk on a set of resources that the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario helped Health Canada develop. It's a guide to extreme heat events. It's a website and pamphlets designed so that members of the public and healthcare professionals can help people cope with dangerously hot days. And it doesn't always use this language, but it deals with the issues of how climate change is affecting our health and well-being, especially older people and poor people and people without good housing. Doris's organization, the RNAO, has a reputation for working on these kinds of issues you wouldn't necessarily expect nurses to be active in. I asked her how the Ontario politician she works with, how they react when she raises these issues. Yes, um, I remember vividly a day that I went to meet with the minister and the deputy years ago, 
And on the hallway, walking through the hallway, the deputy looks at me very seriously and says to me, and we, I went to meet about health human resources in nursing, right? How many nurses, full-time employment, why it was important for patients. And then he turns out to me as we are walking informally, says, now, Doris, what's on with you now about housing? What's on with our new housing? And I smiled, you know, I get very much well along with them so many years and I have developed a relationship and they respect me. I looked at him and I said, well, what do you think about a person not having a roof over their head? Do you think they will be healthy? <laughs> and of course, he started to laugh, right? Because all of a sudden the light bulb goes on. But it's because people work in silos. So by now they're used to it though. They are used to it because we are very much out there, whether it is on uh, the right to know on toxics, rather than you needing to check every bottle if it's the right bottle to drink water, or whether it's specific food. We, we have a right to know if you have toxics in your food, uh, as we had a right to know uh, and the obligation to prohibit pesticides for cosmetic purposes, which we did, right? Or the issue of minimum wage, or the issue of housing and poverty, because they all, at the end of the day, primarily are responsible for people keeping well or being ill, more than the health system itself. The health system is to, is to patch up people, right? When everything br breaks down in social and environmental determinants. But if we kept people out of poverty, if we kept people out of, you know, a extreme heat, a toxics, a pesticides, etc., we will have much less illness to, to, to patch up. So you can see why working outside of your silo can be really effective, can be crucial really for accomplishing whatever it is you're passionate about. But if you're not already in the world of activism, if you're only vaguely interested in politics, you might wonder, why waste your time on this? Why not just vote for the party you like when election time rolls around? Because first of all, uh, all the political parties, given our current electoral system, and we can never forget this, um, always are elected to power, and all power, political power, by a minority of the electorate. I mean, good old Stephen Harper, let us remember, was elected with 39.5 or 39.8 percent of the popular vote. And this person and uh, his entourage uh, have their fingers on our juggler vein. That's Dimitri Rusopoulos. He's an author based in Montreal, and he started a radical publishing house called Black Rose Press. And he is not a fan of the system of having an election and then giving such massive power to whatever party wins for the next few years. So it is not a democratic political system that we have. And we won't talk about the economy, which is also not a uh, democratic system. So we have a problem there. And the challenge, therefore, is to bring together largest amount of people, engage in civil society, uh, in various organizations, various movements who are active now, and the hundreds of thousands of people who volunteer for community organizations, for parent-teachers associations. In other words, people who are um, engaged in wanting to see society better than it is. And that represents a much more powerful and positive force 
in building to, towards a participatory democracy than what we have now. Uh, we have a consenting democracy. That is to say, every four years now, we're required to put a piece of paper in a box and then go to sleep uh, in between elections. I mean, uh, there is no effective and democratic form of public consultation or public participation or citizen engagement in between elections. I mean, we leave it to a professional group of people, 300 odd of them in the House of Commons or in the provincial assemblies or in the city councils. And these characters, in my experience, uh, walk around as if they're appointed by God. You know, they, th they think their inspiration is, uh, is divine and you can't touch them. I mean, some of them are more congenial than others at the personal level, but that's not saying very much. So we need an ongoing um, movement of movements, if you will, that uh, keeps the discussion going at a horizontal level, at a democratic level, through networks who take on important issues and try to move public policy forward, whether it's on foreign policy at the international level or various uh, issues at the, the local level, etc. In other words, uh, we're trying to learn and we're trying to teach each other how to work together uh, and not just put our trust in political parties and politicians. Mm. Dimitri Rusopoulos, a strong united movement outside of parliament, could stop chipping away on small technical environmental issues and start working on transforming society to create a balance between humans and nature, for example. So I went to these workshops where people are discussing how to work together on common themes. And because I work for a nonprofit that represents international development NGOs, I was mostly listening for ways our members could collaborate on issues like water and mining and indigenous rights. And full disclosure, through my work, I've actually been organizing to help get Albertans out to the People's Social Forum here in Ottawa. At the discussions on water and mining, I admit, I was a little disappointed. There was some chance to talk about what everybody was working on, but not a huge focus on, okay, what is our common agenda? Finally, I went to this big group discussion on climate change, and I was actually really impressed by this process. The organizers had written up some draft ideas to discuss, and point by point, everybody in the room was asked to debate if this was something that they wanted to fight for together, and whether it should be changed or modified. And I was a little shy to speak up. I was one of the only Anglophones in the room with the translation headphones on the whole time, and most everybody else was speaking French. And as I watched these proposals get voted on, I realized some of these are not realistic. And more than that, they, they don't mention the human cost of implementing these ideas this quickly. Like, the first proposal was to agree to struggle against all fossil fuel development and forms of transportation. Now, in the medium term, we absolutely have to move off fossil fuels. They're changing our climate dangerously, and already that has a human cost from droughts and flooding and shifting diseases. But to struggle to end all fossil fuel development and all transportation immediately there are hundreds of thousands of people who work in oil, gas, and coal directly, or in companies making trucks and steel and roads for that stuff. The proposals up on the screen at the front of the room didn't have much to say about an exit strategy for them. And the next one was to move to a low-carbon future. Okay, great. But with no fossil fuels and no nuclear power. And I thought, 
okay, where is the practical path to make this happen? Nuclear power provides a huge amount of Canada's energy supply right now. Are we building dozens of new hydro dams? What, what is the practical path to all this? I noticed someone else in the room seemed uneasy, so I pulled him aside in the hallway. Hi, I'm Knut Planthera, and um, I'm, I, I'm a recent activist, join350.org and Indigenous People Solidarity Movement of Ottawa. I've never done any activism before, but uh, I've had the time to think about some things, and I thought it's the time to act. Knut thought something was out of whack, too. For him, it was that the mention of Indigenous people's right to consent over what happened to their land seemed like almost an afterthought. Speaking, generalizing here, I mean, those Canadians aren't Aboriginal. They're, they're settlers or people who come in like myself. With I, I came with, with a parent that moved here, and uh, I grew up here, but I didn't know the history of this country. Uh, this land belongs to certain people that lived here. We took it. <laughs> I, I sort of see that we did. But uh, I, I think that recognizing those Indigenous rights gives us a good reference point to, to how to move forward. So I think the priority was skewed because, or reversed, I think, because of the audience, because of the composition and the colonization of, of this country. Canute, this wasn't the top priority for the people in the room because most of the people in there were not Indigenous. And I realized, you know, as someone from Alberta, I can see something in this room that isn't obvious to most people there, that maybe most people aren't concerned about the human cost of ending the oil and gas industries because they don't know people in these industries as closely as I do. You know, my mom and her partner, for example, work for oil companies. My boyfriend works on a tar sand site. Uh, as a society, I want us to move out of these industries as soon as possible, but I also know it's not a winnable strategy to suggest that these people all be out of a job immediately without new industries to move into. You know, climate change was one part of what was going on at the People's Social Forum, just one issue that was being debated. But it made me realize that there were limits to how people here wanted to reach outside their comfort zone for support for allies to work with limits to what the People's Social Forum would end up proposing as a common agenda for people to work on in Canada. The slogan of the event was, build together, win together, the future is ours. But without building strategies that envision a new place for all of us, even the people in the old economy, that future seems like a very distant dream. That was Chris Changyan Phillips with his 2014 story covering the People's Social Forum that year. Now on to another story from our archives, which despite being a blast from the past is certainly still relevant today. In July in 2012, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory scientist Sun Niem noticed that 97% of Greenland's ice sheet surface melted in just four days. Since Greenland's Arctic ice sheet is massive, covering almost the entire island and kilometers thick in places, NASA estimates that if it all melted, global sea level would rise by about 20 feet. So Niem's first instinct was to double-check the data. Chris Chang and Phillips reached Sun Niem in California for this story that summer. And with ice on our minds after the 2,240 square miles 
trillion-ton piece of the Larsen Sea ice shelf broke off just last month in Antarctica. We thought we would re-air this piece. Okay, so Sun, uh, you were looking at radar data of Greenland's ice sheet last week. Tell me what you saw. Yes, that, that, that is correct. Yeah, let me explain to you a little bit uh, about this. Since a decade ago, I already developed uh, a method to measure the mail on, the, uh, on Greenland. And this mail, it can be on the surface, it can be subsurface uh, sort of mail, as long as there's some sort of liquid water exists in the snow and ice, then we should be able to detect that. And typically, we have like about maybe one or two day delay to look at the signs data that coming down from this uh, um, Indian satellite. So I has the capability to look at the data pretty soon after it was taken. And then it was so large, it's so extensive, it's almost covered the entire Greenland ice surface that I was really surprising. And as you know, any scientist would question everything that they see, especially the one that is most strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I did. So I see, hmm, did I look at the right data uh, or not? So I'm checking on the radar data itself. I look at other places, and it seems to behave uh, like a, what it should be. And then I look earlier than that. If, if, if there is a radar problem, then when is supposed to be no mail, like uh, several weeks before that or even early in the season, there should be no mail. And indeed, that's what, uh, what I see. So I have more confidence in this, but then I'm not satisfied with that. So then I'm consult my colleague at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, Dorothy Hall. She has the capability look, to look at another satellite, and yes, she confirmed that. And then even after that, we want to be more sure. So we look at another satellite from another colleague of mine, and we all confirm that, yes, this satellite uh, observation is correct in saying that this extreme male event did occur across most of the surface of the Greenland ice sheet. So these these satellites are pinging down radar. You can see that there's water. Now, uh, give us some perspective for people who don't know much about how much Greenland can melt in the summer. Why did those measurements that you looked at surprise you? When when we say that this is unprecedented male in the satellite data record, uh, that's where we have the capability of observation, not at one or two or three or ten locations, but across the entire ice sheet. And that capability can only be provided by satellite. And from satellite data record, which we have like just a little bit over three decades, that's how far we can go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that decade, we never see anything that is close to the fact that almost the entire Greenland ice sheet uh, has suffer or undergoing uh, some sort of mail either from surface or subsurface. So that's why it was so surprising. And let me put this in, in, in the sense that you see why we were so surprising. Now, uh, you in uh, Canada, right? So I- imagine that you go to a, a mountain, let's say some mountain is even higher than 3,000 meters. At the central, central Greenland is about uh, 3,200 meters mm. or more than 10,000 feet, right? Mm-hmm. If you go to the peak of that kind of mountain and then you move that mountain, just not at Edmonton, but move it into the Arctic. So you can see how high and how cold it is. And yes, it melts there. So mm. if you put that into perspective, you can see how surprising this, 
this is. And so that's at the central location of the Arctic. And see if you see the entire big gigantic uh, area of Greenland, like is, is, is about what, 2 million square kilometer that, that is covered or undergone uh, this melting process. And that's why it's so surprising. Wow. Uh, now, melting on the ice sheet's surface doesn't necessarily mean that the whole ice sheet is melting, right? How significant? That is correct. The, the amount of melting, it depends on where you are. If you are high at the altitude and latitude, it gets maybe just a little bit above freezing. So then um, you say that, yes, yeah, so how, how much of these water, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about this in this way, say if you at some location uh, on the ice sheet and you look right underneath of your uh, feet and you see, oh, maybe just a little bit melt, there's uh, some water in there. But if you think about this big, gigantic surface area, a little bit of this water would go in a catchment area, which can be like hundreds of thousands of kilometers. And then many of those uh, uh, water, ECBC water, will go into downstream into the stream. And then it collects, once it's collected into the stream, it becomes a very large amount of water because it integrates or it collects the water from the large area and put it into the stream. And once that occurs, it cause, can cause really serious flooding. And probably you already hear on the news about Kangalusiak and the, the Watson River is overflowing, it's flooding, and even blow away a bridge there. Mm-hmm. So yes, for local people, the way that these water come down can be really important. It's already blew the bridge away, right? Mm-hmm. What's behind the temperature rise this summer? I, I mean, I, I think it's important to talk about the difference between weather events and, and climate change trends. Um, right, right, yeah. So when you look at any kind of change, temperature change, climate change, or whatever, you would see that there are two different things. The average mean long term, which is telling you whether you are in warming trend or cooling trend, right? And the other one is suddenly you have an extreme warm day and extreme cold day. That's an extreme event. So for the Greenland case here, we look at the extreme event. So there can be a, a, a long-term mean and there an, uh, uh, an extreme event. So we're talking about two different things. So it's, it's an extraordinary event, but uh, just one piece of the larger trend that you guys are observing. Uh, when you talk about extreme event, you can talk about how often it occurs. And when once it's occurred, what is the intensity of that, right? Mm-hmm. If, and this is a big if, and we don't know about this yet, in the future, if you have more events, and if you have a more intense in each of these events, uh, then it would be uh, more serious. Whether or not these events would occur more often and more intense, we, we don't know that. We just see this extreme uh, event like last uh, number of days, not, not, not for too long yet, right? And if you look back into history, as you see in the NASA press release, the previous one uh, was in 1889, so that's uh, more than 100 years ago. Uh, but with that kind of thing, what I can say for now is that this extreme event qualify or even over-qualify as the male of the century across Greenland.
That was Chris Chang-Yen Phillips speaking with NASA scientist Sun Yem about the Great Greenland Ice Sheet Melt of 2012. And that's all the time that we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments or fun environmental news memes, please send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet us at Terra Informa. We love to hear from our listeners. And don't forget to visit us at terrainforma.ca where you can find extra content, tons more stories, a fun listener survey, and lots more. Plus, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Shelley Jo Dwin, Jason Wang, Andrea Galvin, and Charlie Blay. I've been your host, Amanda Rooney, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of Terra Informa. Informa.